Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Mark Moss, has founded seven companies, each growing past seven figures within the first year, including a high-value exit to a Fortune 500 company. He has fixed, flipped, and developed millions in real estate, invested in private business, gold mines, oil fields, and technologies. And he's done business through three different bear market cycles. I came across Mark in early 2020 on YouTube and have followed him ever since. He is a gifted speaker and teacher in a range of wealth creating and as importantly, wealth preserving strategies. We cover a lot of ground and topics in this conversation as he joins me to share some of his lessons learned and wisdom gained on his journey. A seemingly ordinary individual, not so much, but he's definitely achieved some extraordinary results. Let's get this show started. Mark Moss, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Uh, So excited to have you on the show and get into this conversation and uh, glad to meet you, by the way. Yeah, thanks so much, Patrick. Uh it's a, it's a great it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm excited for the conversations that we're going to have today. You know, so I, I was sharing with you a little bit uh, going into this uh, off camera is that, you know, I started really following you about over a year ago now when COVID really happened. Now, for our listeners, of course, they would have heard in the introduction, uh, the conversation about you're really U.S.-based, and uh, but you've done some remarkable things. I admire very much your teaching style, uh, how you present. Uh, you've gained a really significant YouTube following and uh, 
because I pay so much attention to the economic fundamentals of what's happening in the U.S. and how they affect, affect us here in Canada, uh, I really spend a lot of time watching guys like you. And uh, and I know that you've had, and I follow George Gammon and Lynette Zhang and a whole bunch of people, but uh, at the end of the day, I know also that you know them well. So uh, really appreciate sure. what you're uh, bringing to the table. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, I do talk a lot about the U.S., um, but only because the U.S. drives the rest of the world. And so this is definitely a, a global macro thing that we're looking at. Um, this is a global movement. The U.S. policy kind of drives that. The U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world. So whether you like it or not, it kind of is what it is at this point. But um, So that's why we talk about it. But uh, I think it, it does apply. I know about half my audience is international. And so it, it does apply to everybody everywhere. And yeah, in, in regards to you know George and, and Lynette, yeah, they've they become good friends. Uh, George is someone I speak to on a pretty regular basis. And we're, we're, I'm actually speaking at his conference coming up here in about a week. So that's going to be super fun. It's super important to share your ideas and discuss these ideas with other people like we're about to do right now, just because, you know, we learn and we sharpen our ideas through discussion, you know, and I realize I don't really understand things like I thought I did, or maybe I understand them better. And so it's just such an important piece. And um, it's great. I've always thought, you know, it's important to um, learn do and teach. And so that's kind of the benefit of the, um, of the, of the channel and, and the medium that I'm using, because it's like, I'm learning stuff, I'm doing it, and then I get to teach it. And so there's all those levels of understanding. It's been great. Well, that's actually a winning combination. They always say that, right. Which is, you know, learn one, do one, teach one. And that's a great right. way to make sure that you become the expert in it, that you are, and you've gained a lot of expertise, but when you're, uh, just to give, uh, our viewers and listeners an opportunity to know a little bit about you, Mark, if somebody's asking you, so Mark, what do you do, uh, given all that you do what's your answer to that question it's always been the most difficult question because for, you know i tell my I, I tell my wife it's like i've been uh, i've been unemployed for 25 years yeah so i've always done a bunch of different things i've uh i don't i've never thought in terms of like oh i should go get a job it's like that that idea has just never crossed my mind it's always been just like how can i go make more money so i typically have multiple things going at one time and so it's it's very difficult to nail that down at this point what do i do i mean i i run a I run a, a private investment group I do market analysis and education, you know, online. And so that's probably the, the primary things that I guess I would say I, I, I do currently. I'm a, I'm a full-time investor. I have been for 25 years. So uh, I'm still a full-time investor. I run a private investment group and I'm, a, and I'm an educator, I guess. So that's great, Mark. So where I started listening to you was on YouTube and you give out amazing content, like you're driving content. And uh, how long have you been doing that and what inspired you to go there? Uh, is it really just about, I know you've got some other programs. I believe you've got some other programs that you uh, have in the background, but give me a little bit of why you did what you did on YouTube and what's your kind of uh, intention behind all that. What's some of your goals there? Well, uh, goals is a key word. So um, for years, for decades, I, I read all the best books on goal setting, a dozen of them, trying to figure out how do I set these goals? How do I achieve big things? And for years, I over I would usually skip the first chapter or so. And the first chapter in any good goal setting book is really outlining what your core values are. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, forget the core values. Like, what am I trying to go get? The problem I found is that you can't set your goals unless you know your core values. And so that's a super important piece for anybody listening. You got to start there. And, and most people don't want to start there. But um, when I look at my core values, some of them are like my primary core value is freedom. And people might listen to this and go, oh yeah, well, I value freedom too. 
and and you probably do, but like some people really want to value, you know, dependent, uh, consistency, um, things like that. And so that's kind of like the opposite of freedom. And so that's one, um, being a servant first has always been one, uh, I believe in providing value first, always helping others first. And so, um, and then, and then learning. Um, so, uh, back to, you asked me what I do. I've done a bunch of different things and I'm always doing a bunch of different things because I'm always trying new things. It's like, as soon as I've hit every bump in the road and I finally figured it out, I'm on to the next thing. And so that's, that's a blessing and a curse. Like most people, once you figure it out, you should keep doing it. But for me, I get bored with it. So when I look at those kind of core values, it's, it's kind of pushed me to where I'm at, um, with the, you know, with the teaching on YouTube and the other mediums that I use my podcast. Um, because one, I want to provide value first. And I do that by teaching people things that I wish I knew if I was on the other side of the table. Um, two, I'm, I'm always growing. And three, it provides me freedom. So um, it really aligns with those core values. What really got me going, though, was back in 2016, 2017, I was writing a cryptocurrency research newsletter. At that time, at the end of 2017, whatever you want to may call it, collusion happened. And all advertising for any cryptocurrency-related stuff got shut down. And so just kind of shut us off overnight. And so just started making videos on YouTube and just providing content. And so that's really what started. And so I'm actually producing a three-part video series right now on cycles. And uh, one of the key pieces I'm talking about in cycles is that they're always reactionary. So, you know, one action happens, which forces another action. And so um, to this point, one action happened, which all my advertising got shut down and it forced another reaction, which... <laughs> Was I started making videos on YouTube? Well, you know, okay. So first and foremost, I, I got to say that, you know, when you start talking core values, you know, this is something that I've studied for 25 years, and it's very rare that we, you know, actually talk to individuals who understand what core values are. And your encouragement of others to actually look at their core values is uh, is pretty cool. Now I now I start to understand. You know, I've been watching you for a year and I've said and and by the way, my you know, my wife Stephanie's a little bit annoyed cuz she couldn't be here to meet you today cuz she also is a fan. But we we what we got to is I said to I got to have Mark on the show. I got to reach out and invite him on the show because I just see that we share so many values and so I couldn't identify them, but I just knew that you were connected to values. So that's kind of cool. And it's something that we've coached for many, many years. My wife is an Olympic uh, medal performance coach. And, and we've, oh, wow. we've talked about values a lot. Originally, we did a bunch of work with Dr. John Martini. That's where we got onto it, like I say, 25 years ago. So it's really cool that uh, we're having that conversation. Yeah. Well, then you know how, you know how big that is. I mean, it's a piece that just most people just overlook. And um, you really have no guide for the rest of your life if you don't take the time to figure those things out. It's so important. And, you know, I love that you brought him up is because, you know, in, in the coaching that we've done and I've done over the years is, you know, we ask people, you know, what are your core values? And, and they go to moral values because that's what they understand. So it's not that people, I think, aren't willing to investigate what their values truly are. They just don't even really know what that means. And, and you, you name three of your top, you know, however many. And uh, but that's really what you construct your life around. And that's what unfolds before you when you're living your truth or when you're living true to your values, life is pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. Where did you learn about values, Mark? Well, like I said, I was reading a bunch of goal setting books and they would typically always start out with identifying those core values. Right. And, and of course they need to, because how can you set a goal if you don't know what your core values are? So I don't remember exactly which book it was probably yep. Brian Tracy would probably be my guess. I read a lot of his stuff kind of early on. And so I really poured a lot into my own education. I think 
probably the big thing and, and I'm old. So it started with cassette tapes, uh, from like, uh, Nightingale Con and I think I was ordering cassette tapes and I think I was, uh, uh, think and grow rich was probably the first set that I really listened to. And that was, uh, that was great because it just expanded my mind last week. I was with, uh, a millennial and, um, we were driving the car together for a couple hours and they were kind of asking me, what should I do next? And I don't know what to do. And he kept saying, I don't know what I don't know. And I said, you don't know what you don't know because you haven't gone out there and expanded your context, right? Mm -hmm. You have to go out there and expand your mind. And so that's kind of what that think and grow rich did really expanded my mind. Then it went into like uh rich dad, poor dad. And he actually kind of made that case, which is, um, you know, you, you need to fill up your content, which is the content of this vessel, but you really need to change your context, which is get a bigger vessel. Yeah. And so that's what, you know, these cassette programs, that's what these books do. And then, uh, and, and so anyway, I, I poured a lot into that, went into this, you know, all these personal development goal setting books, and it was probably Brian Tracy who was my guest. That's the long, the long answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Been a long you know, time. Who, choosing who you're being in the context of your life. It's amazing work. And, uh, that's really, really awesome. Let, let me, Mark, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you've had a very, uh, kind of wide ranging, varying, lots of things in, that you've done over your life. You're uh, an expert in the world of cryptocurrency, but that's not to say that you haven't done millions of dollars worth of real estate. Uh, you're an entrepreneur extraordinaire. Let me, let me go back a little bit because, you know, as we, you know, as we look at, and as I have conversations with guests on the show, it's interesting to find out what was your journey to being an entrepreneur. You talk about never having really a job, never thinking about a job. Now, was that, you know, did you come out of the shoot that way? Were your parents entrepreneurs? Where did you get that entrepreneurial spirit? Where did it show up from for you? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, and this is something that I've thought about at length, you know, how did I end up where I am? How do I reverse engineer that, give it to my kids, et cetera. And so I think, yeah, I think it ultimately starts, you know, probably being modeled to me by my, by my parents. Uh, my dad was a, he's a, he's a contractor, you know, works in construction. Uh, my mom was always a stay at home mom, but, but, you know, a contractor that's an entrepreneur, sure. right. If you will. So that, I think that was probably the big thing was kind of modeled to me. And I think more importantly than just being modeled to me, I was forced <laughs> child slave labor. There's laws against this now, but you know, my dad grew up on a farm and so and in a farm, everybody goes to work and my grandfather would actually loan my dad out to the other neighbors to help them harvest. And so that's, you know, that was his life he knew. And so when I was 10 years old, he started hauling me off to go do construction as well. And, and I hated it. I'd go crying and screaming and it was the worst all summers had to go working. And so I hated it. But again, looking backwards, right, I see that was something that was that was beneficial. So not just did he model it, but I actually got behind the scenes and saw how the sausage was made, so to speak. So I think that was probably a big piece of it. In addition, you know, the world was different when I was growing up. And uh, mm -hmm. even families that were well off didn't have what low income families today have. Right. Like we had one pair of shoes, you know, like we had a couple pairs of jeans. Like today, kids have electric bikes and and uh, iPhones. And like when I was a kid, a bike was like one hundred fifty bucks and I had to work to get that sure. money. And where I live, I mean, all the kids are driving around $1,500 um, e-bikes, but, um, so I, you know, I had to work for what I wanted. And so I think, I guess that was pretty, that was instilled into me. I think another thing was that, you know, maybe we're middle-class, if you want to call it that, uh, I don't really know where those definitions fall, but, uh, my, my, my dad worked really hard to send us to a private school. And so like, it was just enough to see what was going on, but we didn't have it. And so it always like, like. I guess kind of had that carrot dangling. I guess that was probably a big thing. Now, fast forwarding, I mean, I did have one job. So let me say that. So I've, I've had one job. I started working for my friend's dad's company in high school. I didn't have to fill out an application. We were basically sweeping floors two hours a day. And like, I just started working and like, that was it. 
I ended up working there full time when I graduated and it evolved and it got bought out, bought out, bought out into the spawn of this huge public company. I worked there for like seven years. I quit. I started my own business and I've never gone back to ever working for anyone again. So I did have one job, but I just knew, you know, so going into it, like, even though I had that job, I was like always looking for where that opportunity was. And, um, I guess it's, I guess it's just been ingrained in me. So how old are you when you kind of started your first business, Mark? Well, I actually started investing in real estate. That was yeah. my first. Uh, so while I was still working in that job, I think I was um, about 20 years old at the time when mm -hmm. I bought my first investment real estate property. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the lines between business owners and investors are very blurred. Yeah. So um, I bought a house, I fixed it up and I sold it. I literally, uh, I was working my full-time job. And then at nights I would go and do all the work on the house. I'd spend all my weekends there. And for six months, I spent every night and every weekend at this house, fixing it up. But when it was done, I sold it for more money than I made in a whole year working full-time. Um, and so that's what really kicked it off. You know, over the next decade, I did over a hundred of those. So was that my business or was I a real estate investor? Right. Mm -hmm. And so like those lines get really blurred, but that that's where I started. Um, and I was doing that while I was working. And then I started another business. It was a service-based business servicing the, the medical, uh, high-tech medical equipment that my company was manufacturing or the company I was working for. Um, and then I, I, I started a business on the side, providing extra service for that. And then I quit and started that full-time. And so I kind of had the real estate business and uh, the medical equipment service business at the same time. So, you know, within the real estate investment network, we often teach that real estate, you know, treat your real estate investing like a business. It's actually uh, for investors, we call that foundational, you know, to look at your real estate investing, treat it like a business and that you are, in fact, uh, a, a business owner, even one property. You know, you're marketing to it. You've got a client called the tenant. You've got revenue coming in. You've got expenses going out. You have to manage it. You have to make sure the location and, that, you know, even one door we consider a business. And it's an interesting way to kind of take it and reframe it so that you're looking at your investments slightly differently. So it's interesting that you bring it up that the lines do get a little bit blurred, but ultimately, if you treat it like a business, it, it's a business, even though you're investing in real estate. So uh, it's a good context well, that, for that. that. I mean, that that's a good point. But also, if you're investing in the stock market, you should be in, approaching that as a business as well. So hmm. if I came to you, Patrick, I came over to your house and I said, hey, I have this great idea for a business. Um, I'm looking to see if you want to invest into my new business. And you would ask me about that business and how big is it going to be? And you know, ultimately you want to know like how are you going to get your money back and, and how yep. many times are you going to get returned on your money? Right. And so you would really look at that and you would kind of look at that as like an investor into my business. But even if you're buying a publicly traded stock, you should approach it the same way. You're technically buying a business mm -hmm. and you should be learning all about that business. And so like, like any business, you would maybe hire a team to run that business for you. If it was a real estate business, you'd hire your property managers, your maintenance people, et cetera, to run that business for you. And if you buy a publicly traded company, there's somebody to run that business for you. But either way, you're always going to be a business owner. And I think you should always take it with that approach. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you join me on the show is, of course, we're, I'm in Canada and our focus in real estate is in Canada. You're in the U.S. and you've got some background, of course, extensive background in the world of real estate, but you do a lot of things. You know, we've got a population of 37 million. You know, the U.S. has got a population of 370 million. It's interesting as, as I listen to uh, those that I follow in the U.S., you know, yourself or George or Lynette or any number. I mean, there's a number of them. Rarely when we're talking talking monetary policy, when we're talking investment, the word Canada 
almost never even gets uttered. And it's interesting because it's like we're not even a rounding error in, you know, in, in the in the big scope of things yet. We're uh, we're a, a huge resource, you know, country of resources. And uh, we're still a we have this really uh, we're pretty important in the overall things. But it's interesting how we're viewed on a global on a kind of a global uh a platform, if you will, global stage. So I'm, I'm curious from your point of view, when you look into Canada, and I know that uh, I, I, I believe I've read or heard, I don't remember, uh, you, you love to downhill ski and, and you're a little bit of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you, you really like uh, getting out there and doing stuff. You're a skier and you're doing mountain bikes or dirt bikes and you're doing a lot of things. So that's kind of cool. But what do you, how do you see Canada? I'm just curious. Well, um, what, first of all, I would say that um, I look at Canada and think about Canada quite a bit. It, it is our neighbor to the north, obviously. But I would say that I probably, I, I think about Canada quite a bit. I mean, I've, I've kind of followed the real estate market there quite a bit. You know, uh, Vancouver obviously yeah. makes a lot of noise, but Toronto yeah. has also been a pretty big real estate market. So I kind of, I study the bubbles there. I study the migration and, you know, where the money's been coming from. So I do. Um, I, I have gone to Canada many times, as you said. Uh, so I'm not a skier. I'm a snowboarder. <laughs> Let me correct oh, that. Oh, yeah. Let's, but, uh, let's, let's be out. Okay. Snowboarders and skiers. Yes. Let's yeah. make sure we're clear. Uh, but I, I tried, I've, <laughs> I've been, you know, trying to get up to Canada like once a year mm -hmm. and typically try to get up and get some of that powder. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, last year it didn't really work out. Um, but I study, you know, I started, studied the real estate markets. I've been up there. I get up there at least once a year. And I also am, am big into the gold and silver mining industry, which yeah. of course, a lot of that's in Canada as well. And so, um, you know, back to investing in ownership, I, I have investing interest or ownership interest in some, some mines up there in Canada as well. Um, so, I, so I pay attention to that, which then makes me follow the politics of what's going on in Canada as well. So I follow that quite a bit. I would say I might follow that more than any other country. The EU is also a, a big thing, and that's not one independent country, but the EU overall, because the, the euro, the euro dollar, et cetera, obviously has a lot to do with the world markets as well. Um, so, you know, I, I study that, but for different reasons. Um, but yeah, I do spend a lot of time thinking about Canada. So, and, and that's great. And, and, and I'm, and I'm kind of giving, I'm generalizing. So when I'm saying, you know, when I'm listening to guys like yourself talk about what's going on in the world, in this global kind of pandemic world that we're all living in and considering how do we survive, thrive, where is it going, what's the outcome is going to be, you know, I generalize and say, you know, Canada doesn't often show up in those conversations. But when you're when you say you think about Canada, you know, what is it for you? Do you think about, gosh, what it would be like to live in Canada? You what would it be like to invest in Canada? How do you view it when you're looking at what's going on? Do you have a, a view of that world, Mark? Well, lately, I feel uh, very bad for my Canadian uh, brothers and sisters up there. Um, now you're talking appears, about our, you're talking about our government, right? Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say it appears from a political, social, yeah. and cultural issue things are going downhill really, really quickly. It is. Um, as I alluded to earlier, I'm doing a three-part video series. I just recorded the first one, but it's about three different cycles converging. And the first cycle is what I call PSE, political, social, cultural. And uh, we're looking at cycles within that. There's 80-year uh, cycles and 250-year cycles. But that drives technological revolutions, and then those cycles drive financial. So you have to understand all three. And so a lot of times people are like, I don't want to hear politics. Okay, you don't have to hear politics, but that's what drives the financial side of things. Um, and so anyway, I, I've spent an enormous amount of time thinking about that and paying attention to what's going on. And, and like I said, so from, from that standpoint, I've, I've definitely been aware of that. I, I'm going uh, tomorrow. I'm hopping on a plane and heading out to Florida for a week for a, a series of conferences. and. Uh, 
many people from Canada aren't, aren't able to join, mm-hmm. you know, because of that. So um, I'm, I'm aware of what's going on on a political standpoint. I also, as I just said, kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm invested in several gold and silver mine companies that are based in Canada. So again, I kind of have to understand the political side. So, because, you know, the politics have a lot to do with how the mining works as well. And then I, you know, pay attention to that kind of stuff in the mining area. So I guess uh, those are the kind of two main ways I look at it. Obviously, as I said, I'm already kind of still paying attention to the real estate stuff. I guess what I would say is part of the reason where maybe you think we don't study uh, Canada as much is because it doesn't drive policy, Mm -hmm. right? It's not driving the world in a direction. Um, Whatever Canada does kind of pertains to Canada. Mm -hmm. And so as it pertains to my money and my friends being in Canada, I'm paying attention to that, but I don't, I'm not looking at that as a leading indicator of where the world is going to go. Yeah, it's interesting. We can, you know, I get, I can get pretty fired up about uh, Canadian politics and our current prime minister and kind of the direction that he wants to go and, you know, his, uh, you know, his ego and, and desire to be on a UN stage. And, you know, it's like, don't even get me going on that. But I got to be honest with you, you know, there's a concern around in Canada, just in politics overall. And, uh, and that's generally because it doesn't really matter whether you're uh, far left, far right, everything's trying to kind of hedge left anyways. And, uh, you know, we really lack leadership in Canada with any of the parties that we have, whether it's liberal or, or uh, conservative NDP, doesn't matter. It's all kind of a little bit weak and that there is some definite some uh i guess political concerns from my view you know as an investor so you know this comes back to really you, you know your expertise is a lot around investment and when you see what's happening in the world mark let's kind of go down that path a little bit if uh, if we could i know that you spend a lot of time looking at what's happening economically on a global scale to your point you know canada doesn't drive certain things uh we certainly are at the you know we're certainly causing uh, in the in the lumber world according to the us uh, <laughs> yeah. we're causing we're causing you know bad us whatever that conversation is uh with biden but you know the point is is that when you look at what's going on on a global scale, you know, you really break things down. You're a big fan of gold, silver, uh, I, I believe uh, cryptocurrency, at least, or crypto, uh, as in Bitcoin. But give me a little bit of background on how you see things folding, unfolding, and what are you doing to, you know, kind of protect yourself, if you will, and, and how do you see things going forward? I see it's a big question, but when you look at, at what's happening economically, when you ha- look at what's happening in the U.S., to your point, I mean, the U.S. is really the center of the universe in so many ways, uh, given the size and what they are economically on a global scale. Do you have some really serious concerns about what all of this is going to be with this, the money printing, what the U.S. is doing and what every country, really almost every country in the world is doing? Do you have some real serious concerns about that? Do you see, Are you optimistic yeah. or really glad? Yuck. When you ask me kind of what do I see unfolding and kind of where where does where does that where do I see that taking us and am I optimistic or whatever that that's really a global thing so it's not even a Canada thing or a US thing it's a global thing and yeah. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head where you talked about you know your PM wanting to kind of be on that UN stage and so we're in this um, stage of globalization and back to this uh, three part video series that I'm going to be dropping I don't know when this video is coming out but. Um, it might be out by then on my own YouTube channel, but um, I'm breaking down these three cycles. And one of them is this 250 year revolutionary cycle. And so um, this is the, the political, social, cultural. And so we have this 250 year revolutionary cycle, which 250 years ago was the founding of the United States, 1776 uh, was the French revolution. Um, and it was the, it was the invention of democracy and capitalism and all these things. Um, so now we're 250 years later, which, which is uh, the next cycle. 
And um, this is a, again, a global thing. So again, back not to Canada or US, but we have the UN, as you've just alluded to. We also have the world, World Economic Forum, right? Yeah. Telling us their 2030 agenda, the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, the World Meteorological Association, the IMF, the UN. We have all these three-letter organizations that are now running the world. And so um, that's where we're going. Um, it's easy to see that right now. Um, like I said, WF is coming out and telling us what their agenda is. The WFO is, or WHO is writing, you know, health policy for the whole world. Um, so it's easy to see how that globalization is happening, but also historically we can see why that's happening. Um, what's interesting is that right now in about 2023 to 2026, um, that cycle ends, we have three cycles all converging and we're going to have massive, massive change happening. And uh, basically what we're seeing. And, and so, yes, it gives me massive concern back to, you know, what you're saying in Canada, far left, far right, this party, that party, it's all confusing and people get lost in words and meanings. It's very simple. There's two things. There's two different policies. One centrally planned, mm -hmm. captured, controlled, or two, it's free, open, and competitive. That's it. I don't know what word you want to call it, but if you're advocating for more government and government being the answer and more control and more centralization, that is, in my opinion, the wrong way to go. That's socialism, fascism, communism, leftism, whatever you want to call that. And then you have free, open, competitive, which is individualism and let us make our own decisions. And that, I don't know what that is, capitalism or free markets or Republicans or whatever that may be. So I think, I think people get caught too much in those words, but it's easy to see that the world is trending towards more control, more central planning. And uh, I think that's a bad thing. I think that people should be free to make their own decisions. And I think the world works better and that's a whole conversation in its own. Um, but we're seeing that the whole world is rejecting that right now. As a matter of fact, in this video I made, I made the case that pre-pandemic, so before the pandemic, there were 10 countries with over 1 million people each protesting. So this goes into an 80-year cycle. There's an 84-year 80, populist regime change cycle, which is also triggering right now. And we can see that 10 countries with a million people each protesting um, countries are dropping like flies right now. Lebanon, Argentina, mm -hmm. uh, you know, massive inflation. Chile just just hold, hold, holding a special elections. Now they voted to write a new constitution. It's been taken over by communists. So we're seeing like this. We're seeing the world trending towards this uh, more globalization and centralization. But at the same time, the world's rejecting it. So it's scary. I have massive concerns on it. To to your point, I don't think that's a world or future that I want. But I think it's a world that uh, fails. I think history tells us that the trend of globalization will change. The pendulum will start swinging back to decentralization. Um, that fits in with a technology cycle that's happening right now. So um, I guess um, short-term bearish and long-term bullish. Yeah, that's great. So when you talk, but when you say short-term, you're talking the next five years, seven years bearish or what are you talking well, about? I mean, it depends on what you're talking about. I mean, obviously the markets, if we're just talking about financially, money-wise, I mean, things are running full steam ahead. It can't go on forever and it probably can't go on for much longer, but things can remain irrational for quite a long time. And so the Fed, the back to the Federal Reserve, I mean, they have shown everything and told us everything. I mean, they're going to continue printing trillions of dollars as fast as they possibly can. You know, does it have another couple of years in the tank? It, it, it very well might. 
But all those things that are being done, the, the consolidation of the power to the IMF, and now they're rolling out SDRs to send to other countries, all that's doing is just speeding up the inevitable demise of it. And so if we're talking about financially, I mean, short term over the next, you know, 16, 18 months, I mean, shoot, man, we could see all new highs keep getting broken, broken, broken. Mm -hmm. um, if we're looking from a more, you know, politically, socially, culturally level, um, I think things are going to keep getting worse. Yeah. Um, so I'm bearish on that, meaning more division, you know, more people fighting, you know, things like that, more regulations to lock you down, things like that. So I'm bearish on that. I think money can go like this. Culturally, we can go like this in the short term, longer term uh, to kind of put some timetables on it. And, and timing is the hard part, but yeah. just like we have four seasons in a year, but, um, and, and we have it marked on the calendar, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's when the weather changes, right? It's, it's kind of within that time frame, And so really it's like 2023 to 2026 kind of is where we'll really start to see those fireworks happen, I think. And I think we'll, uh, unfortunately what ends a cycle and starts a new revolution, isn't an easy transition mm -hmm. to say the least. And so I'm bearish on that, but I believe that's on the other side of that is prosperity and uh, back to freedom and back to growth and, and back to all those things. You know, what I, what I, what I've really come to appreciate and, and kind of respect about what you share often and that I've been following along with is that as much as it's easy to get caught in, you know, what's happening in the world and conspiracies and the conspiracy theories and the great resets and all the rest of that, you don't really go down that path. You do it, you do facts based kind of uh, information and education. And, and it's really, you know, supporting people and making some decisions. And I remember one particular really impactful, it was a, a short segment, relatively short segment that you did, where you said, you know, you had people that were reaching out to you and going, you know, Mark, uh, when is this inflation going to hit? And when is this, when all these things going to happen? And, and you, you did a, an amazing job. And I don't remember what, what the title of the episode was, but it was an amazing job that you said, guys, you, you're in it. It's not like a switch falls, you know, gets flipped and, and all of a sudden yeah. inflation hits and things appear. It's like we're in it. We're, we're actually in the process of that now. Yep. And then you went on to describe what happened in Germany and share some stories around that. You gave it a really powerful context. And, uh, you know, that stands out for me as uh, one of my kind of the most impactful message that you shared is that people are sometimes sitting back waiting, okay, well, I'll react when it happens, you know, and, and, and you're actually saying, okay, no, it's, it's actually happening and you need to start to pay attention and prepare. Can you give a, would you mind kind of re, you know, restating a couple of those key messages that you had there, Mark? Yeah. Um, I think the, that video, I think was, this is how a currency dies. I think mm. it was maybe the title of it, something to that effect. Um, this is how a currency dies. Um, and basically, um, I was talking about how a reserve currency, the U S dollar, how it dies and what it looks like. And then we went back through history. Um, and so I, every video I do, I try to, I try to pull these historical narratives forward to kind of give us more perspective, um, on where we're at and helps us understand where we're going. And so I do that. I've been doing that for years. And so it's really helped me to kind of build this, this three-part series on these, these historical cycles. But I think it was called the, uh, when a currency dies. And, and I was looking at the, the transition of when the pound sterling was the reserve currency and how it handed it off to the U S dollar. And, uh, and, and yeah, to your point, everyone's like, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And I, and I did, I said, well, it, it's happening right now. And so we can look back historically and see that that transition from the sterling to the dollar was about a 30 to 40 year period. Mm -hmm. So people lived through that. Um, I went back and, and we looked at Weimar Republic, Germany, and we looked at hyperinflation to see when that currency died. 
Um, and and uh, one important point that I made in that, um, I referenced a book called um, When Money Dies. And um, they talked about how in that book, uh, or that book when they interviewed people, it talked about how people said, oh my gosh, I can't believe how rich I am. Look how expensive my house is, how much my house is worth. Look how much my gold is worth. Look how much my stocks is worth. I'm going to cash out now. I'm going to lock that in right before the market crashes. So they sold all their assets because they were at all-time highs. But at the end, when their currency was worth zero, they had no assets and all they had was a, a basket full of paper that was worth so little that they were actually burning currency as in their fireplaces because it was worth less than wood. And so they didn't have their gold or their real estate anymore. They had paper that was worth less than wood. And so that was an important um, piece that I laid out that I, I I wanted to give people that perspective. Like you may see your house or your gold or your stocks at all-time highs, but don't confuse that for inflation and hyperinflation and what could ultimately happen to the currency. So, um, and, and, and to your point, yeah, we're in it. Uh, we're in it now on the currency switch. We're in it on this revolution, as I'm talking about. Again, it's not a light switch moment. Um, just like the seasons transition, they don't all of a sudden you wake up one day and it's summer and the next day it's it's winter. Um, it's a transitional period that you live through. And so, yeah, we're, we're in it. And, and, uh, I think, I think even if you're not paying attention, meaning you're not, you know, watching videos, like you are having these conversations, you feel it. Mm -hmm. I think everybody can feel it. I think everybody can feel the tension. Everybody knows that they're not getting ahead. Everybody knows it's a little bit harder to live than it used to. Everybody can feel the tension of people fighting. Um, and so everybody, everybody knows it. Uh, they just maybe haven't put their finger on it. You know, it's, it's interesting. It, it, that was such a powerful segment for me. I mean, the way that you explained it was pretty straightforward and simple. And, you know, and I, I just appreciated it because uh, from my point of view as, you know, as an educator, as a coach, given what we do as a business, it was really a really powerful context. I, I'm curious, though, Mark, it was when you look at it, you know, considering all of the currency that is being printed, U.S. being reserve currency, but, you know, ultimately there isn't, I, I don't really think there's a country that hasn't cranked it up high. Uh, I think the U.S. is probably, if not the worst, one of the worst offenders of that, if, if offender is the right term. So how do you see, when you look at what's going on in the U.S., are you anticipating inflation, hyperinflation, uh, more hyperinflation? Like, how do, you see, how do you see things unfolding in the U.S.? Well, again, we're we're living through it, right? We're watching it right now. So we're living through it, but there's also a, a deflationary component of it, given technology. So you know, it's it's yeah, we're living through it, and we're seeing prices start to escalate. And we we talked briefly about lumber and what's going on there, but there it, you know we're seeing it in vehicles and used vehicles, and we're starting to see a lot of. I just had a buddy over, uh, you know, came visit me, and and uh, I I said, hey, you got a new truck? He goes, yeah, I needed one. And he says, and I was looking for a used truck. He says, used trucks have got like crazy, uh, you know. I, I, yeah. He says it was more economical for me, and and he's certainly can afford it. He says it was just more practical and economical for me to buy a new truck than to go pay the price on a used truck. So it's interesting we see all of those things happening. So it's a little bit of both. But how are you seeing it in the in I guess in the longer term? I talked to someone uh, a couple of days ago who um, took a, a used truck back with thirty thousand miles and was sold it back to the dealership for more money than they paid for it when it was brand new. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, those stories happen all over the place. What I'd say about inflation is it's a it's a nuanced conversation, mm. and so you know, the, in the in the United States, the Federal Reserve uses something called a CPI, the Consumer Price Index. It's like a basket of goods, and they try to kind of gauge um, inflation off of that. But it's a 
in my opinion, it's a political tool. It's manipulated to kind of show yeah. them, show us what they want to show us. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, what I buy is going to be different than what you buy. So mm -hmm. inflation is going to hit us differently. And it also goes into different assets differently. So um, the most scarce assets in the world go up the most. And uh, the ones that are, are are not scarce go up the least. So we're going to see beachfront property, lakefront property going up way faster than we're going to see, you know, property in middle America or middle Canada, probably. Um, right. We're going to see scarce um, financial assets going up more, fine art, collectibles, things like that go up more. And then, you know, you mentioned lumber 300% right? Used cars, 30%. We know that the, about, you know, about 30% of all us dollars in existence, they were created in the last year. So of course it's not really that surprising. The prices seem to be up about 30%. Um, but to your point, some maybe are down, some are up, some are up 300%. Yeah. Um, and so they, it does go differently. Now you referenced a couple of things. So one, you referenced, what about deflation caused by technology? Um, there's also deflation caused by markets collapsing. That's the big problem that the mm -hmm. Fed's trying to shore up against. Um, but then we have inflation because, as I already kind of mentioned earlier, the Fed's trying to produce as much dollars as they can. And so, you know, the debate is, will the Fed be able to print enough dollars to keep up with the deflation effect that's going on? And I think ultimately the answer is no. In the short term, I think the answer is yes. I think in the short term, they're going to, uh, they, they've proven to us. So 2008 was like a, this reactionary move. Um, it was the first time we really saw QE, quantitative easing happening. Um, but today, the, the Fed is not waiting around reactionary. I mean, that first little dip in March of 2020, and they came out full guns blazing. Jerome Powell, the Fed's that they're going to print to infinity, uh, you know, do whatever it takes. Janet Yellen comes in. She says, we have to quote unquote, act big. Um, worry about the debt later, she says. And so they've told us, they've shown us that they're going to preempt this. They're going to go go big, go, uh, as she says, act big. Um, so I think that means in the interim in the or in the short term, more money printing, more inflation. We also have, back to this kind of political, social, cultural, these revolutions, we also have major supply chain issues. And this isn't just an issue of, um, you know, the pandemic shutting things down. This is a this is a this is an 80 year revolutionary regime change cycle and a 250 year revolutionary cycle converging, and so it's a rejection of globalization. Globalization is breaking down. Supply chains are breaking down, and that's also causing some of these prices to spike up. Um, and people might say this is kind of like a black swan event, but when you go back through history, you'll notice these black swan events always seem to happen in these same time periods um, because, again, they're reactions um, to things that are happening. So. I mean, to answer your question, it's a nuanced question. Inflation in the US, we're shipping hyperinflation off to other countries. So it depends on where in the world you are. Again, if you're in Argentina or Lebanon or Chile, you're seeing hyperinflation. In the US, it's just inflation. Yeah. Canada's kind of doing their own thing. Um, but I see in the US and kind of for most of the world, uh, short-term inflation, that's my bet. Um, I think they're going to print as much as they can. Go till you blow, so, as I say. Um, and eventually that, that fails. And then it's the deflation. Well, I think, you know, I think Canada's pretty much following that lead. You know, there's some probably some debate around that. But, you know, we're printing cash like you. We don't have enough people going back to work. It's interesting that I'm noting that it sounds like to me, both Canada and the U.S. governments are are trying to paint a rosier picture than I think can be existing. I mean, in Canada, at the end of the day, we still have hundreds, thousands of small businesses that are shut down. Uh, we look at what's going on in the service industry, in the hotel industry, tourism, travel. Of course, airlines are are choked down, I think, f even farther than what's going on in the U.S. On the other side of it, you've got the same productivity 
issues because you have uh, staff shortage or, or or availability of labor shortage uh, or availability of labor. And so productivity on the U.S. size and you guys are importing more than you're exporting and it, you know, from China. And so it becomes this, you, to your point, it's, it is nuanced. It is problematic as how you look at it. So the big question, I guess, is, you know, and this is part of what you talk about is, is how do we gauge and how do we uh, plan for what's coming. As investors, this audience is really primarily focused on real estate. But having said that, many like myself are are diverse in what we invest in. So when you look at what's happening and because you've got a background in housing, and I know U.S. is so much, it's so different than Canada on the housing market. I mean, you guys have big uh, you know, REITs and uh, coming in and buying actually single family housing. And so it's a, it's a, we don't have that, we don't have that issue, but we do have a supply and demand issue as in higher demand with limited supply. We've shut down borders. We're usually letting, you know, three, 400,000 immigrants into the country that's been shut down. So already we have those, that immigration has been shut down yet. Uh, we still have this supply issue and uh, higher demand. So when you look at real estate, let's start there. When you look at real estate on either side of the border, Mark, uh, do you see that as, a, as still as a good hedge? Uh, is it still a good investment uh, when you look down the road a little bit further than what's happening today as we look into the future? What's your thoughts? Well, I learned uh, early on in my real estate career because I've had to go through a couple of bears and uh, bull and boom cycles. I learned that there's no such thing as good and bad timing. Mm -hmm. There's good and bad strategies. Mm -hmm. um, what I would say to real estate investing, because that's a big, big question or big topic, I think buying uh, properties for cash flow mm -hmm. is still a decent uh, strategy. Never go wrong. That's, yeah. yeah. What's, so I think that strategy in this market currently and kind of the near future makes sense still today. Um, you make your money when you buy. So if you can, you know, buy cash flow in real estate, I think that's a good thing. What scares me is back to the political, social, cultural things. Um, so in the, you know, the World Economic Forum tells us by 2030, we're going to own nothing. Your PM seems to be jumping on that bandwagon sooner than, than the U.S. is. But even in the U.S., we have, you know, we have legislators calling out to abolish rents, uh, you know, abolish uh, uh, rent evictions, moratoriums, um, all these types of things. So as a real estate investor, that's really scary to me. Um, at the underpinning of every great society is private property rights. Mm -hmm. And when you start messing with private property rights, the whole thing falls apart. And so obviously, being a real estate investor, I need to be able to control my private property. And if the government's meddling in that, either one, saying I can't charge rent anymore, putting a cap on the rent I can charge, telling me I can't evict people, that's a problem. That's a real big problem. So um, in terms of risks, right, when we look at uh, opportunities, we always want to understand what those risks are. And so that is the biggest risk I see with real estate investing today. It's more of like a political, social, cultural thing. Um, and so I would mitigate that like I would any other investment. We manage our risk really three ways through one, through allocations. That means don't put all your money into real estate. Sure. Two, we do it through position sizes. So don't, don't put all your real estate allocation into one real estate, spread it around. And then uh, typically we can use stop losses, real estate. We can't really do that. But so I would look, I'm looking personally at buying real estate in multiple jurisdictions, mm -hmm. right? So um, some states in the United States are going way overboard and I would no way would I buy real estate in those states. Whereas other states like Florida, I mean, the governor is like openly pushing freedom policies. And so it gives me a little bit more uh, hope buying real estate in those districts. But then do I want all my real estate, even in the United States? 
Mm-hmm. Right. So I might want to buy, um, I'm working on actually, I just put an offer a couple of days ago on a place down in Mexico, kind of diversifying that risk a little bit in, in regards to that. And so anyway, for your listeners, I would probably advise the same thing. That's what I'm doing. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you make a couple of great points and, you know, part of what we teach is, is there is no bad economies there's just bad strategies. So when you're mm-hmm. looking at, you know, real estate, you have to look number one, regionally, number two, what is the strategy? Are you trying to do a fix and flip in a market that it isn't timing for fix and flip or rent to own? So, and we right. look at the economic fundamentals of what's driving it. You know, what's your thoughts around interest rates? Because, of course, interest rates do affect a lot of things. We see what's happening in terms of, uh, like you say, inflation. We know that the, one of the fundamental tools that they have to slow things down is to raise interest rates. But then, of course, the uh, ripple effect or the unintended consequences of that are not something that the government wants to live with, whether we um, think it's probably prudent to do it or not. I mean, we go back into the 80s when you're 18% and 20% interest rates and what happened back in late 70s or late 70s, early 80s. So what's your thoughts on what do you think the, the feds will do? Because Canada will follow uh, the U.S. lead to some degree, I suspect. What's your thoughts on interest rates and what they'll do? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great point that you bring up. And really, it's it's probably one of the, in my opinion, maybe one of the most overlooked aspects of real estate because, um, and I've done a videos on this, um, I think nine, I can't remember off the top of my head now, 93% of all mortgages in the United States are, or houses are purchased with a mortgage. Mm-hmm. And so that means that nobody's buying the price of the house, they're buying a monthly payment. And so when you talk about prices are expensive or prices are cheap, well, cheap compared to what? <laughs> because the the total price of the home might be expensive relative to where the price of the home used to be a decade ago. Doesn't mean that the monthly payment's expensive, and so that's driven by that interest that that interest rate as you're talking about. So while the price of homes, the total value of the homes have gone up, the monthly payments have been driven down, and so that's a super important piece to look at. Now, what's going to happen with interest rates? I would say, you know, from a United States Federal Reserve policy. Uh, <laughs> I don't see rates going up anytime soon. As a matter of fact, they've told us that we're not even thinking about thinking about. That's what they said. That was their quote. We're <laughs> not, not even thinking, thinking about thinking. About. I love that quote, by the way. That's great. Yeah, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. So um, I don't see them th- uh, thinking about raising rates anytime soon. I mean, they can't. Um, they need to print trillions of more dollars. How can they think about raising rates? The problem is, is that the bank lending rate isn't necessarily driven by the Fed rate. Mm. And so those two don't necessarily move in unison. So we've seen um, that bank uh, interest, uh, mortgage reserve rates here in the United States have, have bumped up about a percent, um, whereas uh, you know, the Fed fund rate has, has stayed down um, or it's gone up a little bit. So they don't necessarily move in unison. So we mm-hmm. could see where the banks, even though the Fed is giving them the, the same reserve um, capacity, they don't loan that money back out or they change who they loan it to. Um, so that could change. I would say overall interest rates stay historically low. Maybe they go from the two and a half percent to three and a half or four percent, which is still historically low. However, that does bring the price of the payment up, and that would, you know, it would soften the real estate market. So I think I've heard from some local agents I've been talking to um, in the Southern California market that um, there might be a little bit of softening coming, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen any hard evidence of that. I think at the end of the day, though, back to your point, uh, Fed Fed interest rates stay low. They have to for. Mm-hmm the next five years, at least as far as we can see, most likely, if anything, they're going to be yield curve controlled. So the Fed would actively move to suppress those rates. Potentially, we could see the bank rates go up a little bit, um, which could soften real estate. But overall, the the Federal Reserve, the policies need to protect real estate. I mean, look, they spent over $8 trillion trying to prevent the markets from crashing. They're not going to, they're not just going to sit back and go, oh, 
well, that was a good try. Let's just let it go to hell now. Like they're just not going to do that. So uh, we know that one of the, one of the big things the Fed's doing is buying the mortgage-backed securities. They're going to continue that. So you know, we might see rates go up a little bit, uh, maybe put a little pressure on housing prices. But overall, I think as long as the overall markets stay up, the real estate markets stay up. You know, something that's interesting, you know, we look at what's happening in Canada, we see a little bit of fixed rates going up. Uh, we see variables staying quite low. Most people are really looking at that that variable rate, although some are locking in. I mean, you can still, you're, you know, sub 2%, so two and a quarter, one eight nine, and you know, uh, so it, it's that's, that's free money. It's that's free, free money. money. Take it's, it. Well, you know, and it's the math on inflation versus interest rates. If people did that math, they'd realize why it is that they, you know, so many really wealthy people don't mind borrowing money when you've got what's going on going on. So uh, it's yeah. interesting, and and I don't know what it is in the U.S. I haven't looked at it in the U.S., but you know, Canada's market right now is more than fifty percent of what's driving our GDP is in fact housing. Whether you know, because and all of what that creates in terms of construction and, sure. um, you know, jobs that it creates. So I don't, I don't know where you at, where's us at in that? Is it, is it high in the U S as it isn't here in Canada? Uh, I don't know the number yeah. uh, of that Just specifically curious. off the top of my head. I know that, you know, when the 2008 mortgage crisis happened, um, where I lived in Orange County, California was like the mortgage epicenter of the whole country. And so we got disproportionately affected when that went down. Uh, but I don't know what it is over, over a, a national scale, but I would, guess that it's probably somewhere in line with where Canada is. Yeah. And to your point, yeah, I mean, the banks, the mortgage lenders, the underwriters, the property title people, totally. but all the way to the construction, the building materials, et cetera. I mean, it would just, it would just be an entire blow or blow, a huge blow to the entire economy, which has kind of made the case, like the Fed can't allow that to happen. And so as long as they're going to prop up any markets, they're going to keep that market propped up. Yeah. And that's what I'm feeling about Canada as well. So, you know, it's interesting around the housing. So you brought up 2008 because uh, I know that part of your story is you were at the effect of 2008 in a big way. And uh, if you don't mind, just share a little bit of your story. I know you had your ass handed to you back then. What was that yeah. like? What did you do to deal with it? How was that kind of, uh, you know, fallout for you? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was super tough. So, uh, you know, I kind of gave you a little bit of my backstory. Uh, about 1995, I, I, I bought my first property, fixed it up, sold it. I had, had two different businesses I started non-related to real estate. One was a uh, medical equipment. I started an e-commerce business selling stuff online in, in 2001 at the end of the dot-com crash. And, and I did really good with business. And uh, I had a Fortune 500 exit. I had I started developing real estate, uh, commercial projects, et cetera. And I had a 10-year run that was amazing. And I was on top of the world. And I got married and I had my first kid and built this massive dream home. And I sold my businesses and I was, I'm done. I'm checked out, right? Then the 2008 collapse came and I got wiped out. And that was super hard. Not only not only did uh, I lose my investments, but all my income was coming from real estate as well because I had sold my other two businesses that weren't related to real estate. So um, the problem that I had, well, it was, it was a big problem. Um, it was a, a very, very difficult problem. And not just being broke, but being in the hole and losing your income at the same time. And just that mental shift of thinking you had it all figured out and you're on top of the world and you were done in life to now, shoot, <laughs> I got to start back over from ground zero. That was, uh, yeah, that was, that was super hard as, as you can imagine. I think, um, you know, I was really good at making money. Obviously, I made a lot of money. Um, I didn't understand a couple key concepts. I didn't understand the financial casino, what goes on on Wall Street. And so that's why I've spent the last decade or 12 years studying that and reporting back. Um, but the other thing was that I really overlooked, you know, the the main rule of investing, which is, you know, risk management. And that's where I said, there's like three ways that you can protect your risk um, allocation. So I sold all my businesses, I sold all my assets and I put it all into real estate. So my allocation was wrong. 
my position sizes within those allocations was wrong. Uh, what I did is because I was starting to develop, um, I went from hundred thousand dollars single family homes to now doing $10 million projects. And I had, you know, I had over 200 rental doors at one time. Um, so I was very diversified within that allocation, but then I compressed those allocations to get enough funds to do those big projects. And, um, so, so not only did I have the allocation piece wrong, I had the position sizes wrong. And then, um, you know, I saw the writing on the wall. I wasn't an idiot. I, 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 I was, I was a student of history back then as I am now. Um, the problem is, is I sold whatever I could sell. So I sold my house. I sold a couple of apartments I had left, but some of these big $10 million, $5 million projects I was working on, these are five-year projects. Like mm-hmm. these take forever. I mean, I'm, I'm building from the ground up. And so even though I saw that, I saw, Oh shoot, in the next two years, we're gonna have a problem. I still got three years left on this project. So it wasn't like I could just like pivot out of it. And so I was kind of stuck. So yeah, I I violated my own rules. Like I didn't have the right allocations. I didn't have the right position sizes. And so unfortunately when the downturn happened and again, being a student of history in California, real estate had only crashed really one time from 89 to 92. During that four-year period, it crashed about 30%. The worst 12 month drop was about 18, I'm sorry, it was about 6% in 12 months. So I kind of did my math and I said, well, what if the worst happened 6%? I could live with that. What if it doubled 12? I can live with that. What if it tripled 18%? I could live with 18%. So I'll keep working. In California, it dropped 60%, yeah. 60% in 12 months. So, you know, you think you you're in good at 30, 40%, L, you know, loan to value, or I'm sorry, 67% LTV, but then the market dropped 60%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, nobody was prepared for that history had never seen that before. And so anyway, it was, uh, it was some tough lessons and it's kind of, again, back to doing what I'm doing today, which is I'm trying to keep people from making those same mistakes again. And, uh, there, it's easy to prevent them. You have to hold back your own human nature, which is tough, right? Your, your greed, your, your will for pleasure. And, and you just have to stick to a strategy. You have to be disciplined. And, um, if you can do that, you can have success. And I didn't, and I had to learn the lesson. So when you look back at that time and, and, and the reason I just want to dig it up to a little bit, uh, Mark, only in that, you know, I think it's every entrepreneur's nightmare, you know, to have that catastrophic failure. I mean, uh, you fail, you still fail. I fail. I continue to fail. I'm 63 years old. I, I'm still screwing up. You know, it's like, but what you went actually down the, you know, you went to the bottom of the rabbit hole, which is a catastrophic fail, but that is in fact, quite rare. You know, that I, I, I at least I believe that, uh, and maybe you have evidence otherwise because of, of the education that you provide. But when you're in that space, you know, we can prevent it, but mentally, when you go back to just context and values and all of the things that happened, you're freshly married, you've got shit, uh, you know, a child, whatever the case may be. Yeah. What did, what did you have to do? What did you do to kind of overcome that, you know, that catastrophic failure just from a mental point of view? Did you have good mentors? Did you have good people around you at the time? Um, how did you get through that time? Well, um, you know, you said earlier, like, I'm kind of like an action sports kind of guy. You kind of alluded to that. So I talk about, you know, going to Canada and jumping out of helicopters on the ice caps and sure. I chase big waves all around the world. And I grew up racing dirt bikes. I've broken pretty much every major bone in my body. I have metal in all my limbs. And, uh, so, you know, I've been there, I've, I've been in the hospital many times and, um, you know, I've just learned like, well, I didn't, I didn't make that jump. <laughs> I broke my leg. <laughs> I'm in the hospital. I got a rod put in it. And so I think, you know, it was that kind of tenacity. And I think, I think ultimately like there's, there's two things that I would, I would kind of give to people to take from this, right. Success leaves clues. And these are kind of my success things. So one, it's that tenacity, right. Um, you just got to keep swinging. 
just got to keep swinging. You got to mm-hmm. keep trying. And I've met too many people who have tried one time and failed and they never want to try again. Unfortunately, usually your first time doesn't work out. Now it might, but then their second or third time is going to fail. So you just have to know that failure is going to happen. I tell people um, ideas I have and they're like, oh, but this is going to happen. And this bad thing's going to happen. This is going to happen. I say, yeah, you're right. Those things, those bad things will happen and I'm okay. So um, the one is having that tenacity, knowing that you're probably going to fail and you have to keep going. And so even though I failed on a massive scale, what else was I going to do? I had to keep going. Now, not everybody was able to do that. I have friends that never recovered from that mentally. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say, and this is a really big thing, because we're talking about investing. You run a real estate investment network. I run an investment network. This is, the, this is the big piece. So I see too many people, and I'm sure you do as well, who come into the investing space and they're ready to quit their job. Hmm. I want to quit my job and I'm going to be a full-time investor. Yep. How much money do I need? How long is it going to take me to where I can just do this as a full-time job? And the answer is never. And I already talked about how the lines between business owners and investors are very blurred. But really, I think there's three ways that people need to focus on money. And most people don't understand this. So the first thing you have to understand about money is you need to be a wealth creator. You got to create wealth, right? That's your business. That's your job. You're creating wealth. Then once you have that wealth, then you want to use it to accumulate more wealth, wealth, wealth accumulation. That is where investing comes into play. And then when you've accumulated some wealth, then the third and final stage is you need to protect that wealth. And for some people who haven't made a lot of money, they don't get this, but it's way harder to keep your money than it is to make it. Isn't that true? And people don't understand that. So you need to focus on those three things. And so, um, as I said, I have all these people want to come into investing and think that's their new career. Um, but what I had right and what helped me is I knew how to create wealth. I lost it on the wealth accumulation. I didn't get to the wealth preservation side. I lost it there, but I knew how to make it. I was really good at making mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. I went back and I just made more money again. And, and most people haven't figured that piece out. And I think um, even though, like I said, we're talking about investing, I talk about it on my channel. Um, I think that's the most overlooked piece. People need to focus on making more money, learning how to create value. As I said, I have never had a job. I just figure out ways... And I say that lightheartedly, I, I, I own businesses, so I guess that's a job, but my point is I go, I go create value, mm-hmm. right? And I think more people need to focus on that. And that's what gives you that tenacity or that ability to come back through things like that. I love that. You know, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, uh, Jean-Guy Francoeur, uh, my chief growth officer for the Real Estate Investment Network and a very close friend of mine, you know, he's a, he's a lot like you in terms of his decision-making and creating wealth and, and driving value. Uh, but, you know, one of his philosophies is, listen, jump out of the airplane, decide jump out of the airplane, and he's 100% confident that he'll build the parachute before he hits the ground. And, and that's how he's built and how he's designed because, yeah. you know, he makes those decisions. He knows that you can't create something standing still. You actually have to move. You know, I often say you can learn how to swim on YouTube, but you don't really learn how to swim until you jump in the pool. And that's yeah. really where the lessons get. And I think, you know, it's like you jump out of a, a helicopter, you break a leg. It doesn't stop you from getting back in the helicopter. It just means that, you know, you you have the tenacity and you have the wherewithal go, okay, so I know what I did there. Uh, I weighed the risk, knew I'd risk a broken leg or whatever that might be, or two broken legs, but it doesn't stop you. It just means that next time you jump, you're going to tweak whatever you go. And I think that's really what it is about investing as well, is, is that you do what you do, you're going to make mistakes, then you have to put in the corrections, you have to risk mitigate. And uh, and I, I also love what you said, is that a lot of people can make money, it's hanging on to it that is, in fact, uh, can be a challenge. Yeah, definitely. 
So when you look at what's happening in the in the world today, I want to jump off of real estate because I also know that you have some expertise. You're a big fan of gold, silver, and and crypto. Tell me a little bit about where you are on your. Let's let's start with the crypto journey because that's something that you've really gained a lot of expertise in, is my understanding, Mark. Yeah, well, um, as I said earlier, that's that was the the cause that led to the effect of me of me having the YouTube channel in the first place. So, um, what I'd say is, after two thousand eight, like I said, I was really good at making money. Had had that part figured out, but I'm like, <laughs> what the heck is this great? You know, this great financial crash. Like, what is going on behind the scenes? What are these mortgage backed securities? How does Wall Street really work? All these questions, and so that's where I had to dig in. I mean, I just at that point, I just kind of vowed to myself, like that's never going to happen to me again, and so. I had to learn about that. And as I learned about the financial system, I became a gold bug. Hmm. I'm like, well, the problem's clear. <laughs> they, they're printing money. <laughs> they, that doesn't work. You can't print money. We need to have a limited supply of money and, and on and on and on. So I became a gold bug. That was, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, and so um, I'm still a fan of gold and silver. Um, I've been a gold bug for a long time. Um, that being said, I also am a fan of uh, liberty and freedom. As I said, it's my core value, my, my probably my number one core value. And so I'm always optimizing for that. I've been worried about the direction the world, the United States and the world has been going for quite a long time. I was subscribed to a newsletter forever, uh, still am called Sovereign Man. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically it talks about being a sovereign man and not having your whole life, like just like I wouldn't put all my money into one stock. Why do I have my whole life in one country? Why not plant multiple flags across the world and be truly sovereign? And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really keyed into that, that, that philosophy. And I was actually in 2015 in the process of setting up a trust in Panama and opening a bank account so I could work on like a residency program and whatnot. And, um, I just took another look at Bitcoin. I had known about it and followed it. I'm an entrepreneur. I, I've been in, in internet marketing for for you know since 2001 when I started that internet business I told you about. Um, so I'd known about Bitcoin for a long time. Kind of followed it. The booms and busts. I, I wasn't know what to, sure what to make of it. 2015, I took another look at it. Right as I was doing this thing in Panama, and I was like, it's the same thing. I'm looking to try to get money out of the financial system to um, distribute my risk to manage my risk. I mean, Bitcoin's the same way. It's a way for me to get money out of the financial system. So I, I went into Bitcoin instead. And um, as I learned more about it, and again, I, I'm talking about these three cycles, political, social, cultural. So I'm really keyed in on political, social, cultural issues. Um, as I keyed in on this, I just realized, you know what? This is the only tool that we have. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is the only tool that we have to break the grip and the trend of moving to a complete totalitarian world. It's the only thing we have. And so it was at that point I said, I'm all in and I've just pivoted my whole career and uh, I've been doing it ever since Um, 2016. As I told you, I started the newsletter 2016, 2017. I got, you know, kicked off of advertising, moved on to YouTube and and I've been at it ever since. Um, I still talk about gold and silver. I still like gold and silver. But what I realized is it wasn't that I was a gold bug. What I was, was a sound money advocate. Mm. I'm an advocate for sound money. Yeah. And uh, gold is gold was and could be a sound money. Bitcoin is a sound money in the sense that it cannot be inflated, right? You can't just go create more of it. Um, and so um, I went from a gold bug to a sound money advocate and and kind of that that sound that kind of wraps it up. So my sense of it, you know, the pandemic was is, has been interesting because it really expanded on how people see the world. Uh, I think more than ever, people are paying attention uh, to what they do with the money that they have. How do they invest their capital? You know, crypto was one of those things that uh, just showed up. It's now, you know, you, you got some big fans of it. I mean, you got some guys that are saying, you know, stay the hell away of it. I think about uh, uh, Peter Schiff, you know, as an example, he's so such a gold bug and, you know, 
there's nothing in crypto. Then you got somebody like Michael Sayer who's going, Hey, listen, you know, why are you in gold? You should be in crypto. Yeah. So, you know, in Bitcoin. So it's interesting to see the diversity and, and what's happening in the market. But I, I think more than ever, uh, the education of people and the, the interest of people looking for a place to put capital, uh, there's a huge wealth transfer um, that we talk a lot about, which is, you know, the boomers coming in. And, 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 and to your point, you talked a little about Vancouver, Toronto. I mean, there's boomers that are literally taking money off the table, whether they're selling their properties and, and uh, you know, kind of scaling down or they're pulling capital off the table and just in terms of the equity that they've gained. I mean, millions of dollars uh, that they've gained over the years and they're just taking it off the table and they're going, hey, time to check cash out, buy a smaller place, buy a place in, you know, that I, in, in the interior of British Columbia or wherever that might be. So we're seeing all sorts of movement that the pandemic has created. Some of it really kind of cool, uh, interesting to sit back and observe. Uh, certainly uh, interesting to watch guys like you that are really paying attention to what's happening economically and, and kind of giving food for thought, if you will, of what are you going to do with your money? How are you going to actually protect yourself from the potential or or the the, the trajectory that seems a little bit negative, especially as you say, it, you know, we can look at the long term and say, you know, it'll always work out as long as you get a long term view of the world. <laughs> well, you know? I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. Like an ostrich can put their head in the sand, but it doesn't mean the, the lion's still not going to eat it. Um, <laughs> so so uh, I think it was Ayn True. Rand said that uh, you can choose to ignore reality, but you can't ignore the consequences of reality. And so, what you know, I think that's a great point that you bring up. And, and uh, I said kind of earlier, like, um, even if you're not paying attention and you don't know, you know, there's something going on. Mm -hmm. And so you can see it. I mean, people are dumping dollars as fast as they possibly can. I mean, there is like rats jumping off of a ship. And so people just inherently know like, Hmm, prices are getting more expensive. I should buy now before they get too expensive. But there's a whole paradigm shift that needs to be made. If you really want to have success in this and you really want to have success going forward, you have to change your whole thinking. And, and it's easy, but it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. So there's a paradigm shift that has to happen. Everybody knows that lumber is going up at a crazy rate. Houses are going up at a crazy rate. I better buy a house now because if I don't, it's going to be more expensive in the future. I better buy a car now because it's going to be right. So everybody knows that. Um, and so everyone's getting rid of their dollars as fast as they can. But the paradigm shift is that things aren't getting more expensive. The value of the dollar is going down. Mm. It's taking more dollars to buy those things. That is the key piece. And I know it's a small shift, but it's a very important piece because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do, what we have to do is we have to find a way to maintain our purchasing power. That's the key thing. And so whether you want to put your earned dollars into real estate, because real estate's going up with the rate of inflation or hopefully faster than the rate of inflation or stocks go up with inflation or at the rate of inflation or Bitcoin or whatever it may be. Ultimately, we want our investments to go up faster than the rate of inflation, right? Because if it just keeps up with inflation, we're just running, running in place. We want it to be going up faster. And so um, it's that small shift that I think that just changes everything for everybody. Uh, but everybody knows it. Everybody sees it. Everybody's getting rid of those dollars as fast as they can. They just don't understand why. 
Well, we say they're, they're getting rid of dollars as fast as they can, yet I'm, I don't know what the U.S. is. In Canada, we have the highest savings rate that we've ever had, which is problematic in its own because it's not churning back into the economy. And uh, that that's a concern. But, you know, people don't know what to do with their money and they're they're afraid and they're saving money. I mean, we talk about like everybody in the world's investing in real estate, gold, silver or crypto, but that's really not the case. You know, the biggest part of our populations, and I'm, I'm speaking more from Canada because I'm not 100% sure in the US, is people are banking it afraid of what's coming down the pipe. Do you see it the same way or are you seeing it differently? Uh, no, I mean, you're right. I mean, um, when the pandemic broke out, we saw the, the savings rate go up for sure. Um, I think a lot of the spending that we've been seeing has been stimulus money spending. So, I mean, yeah, I think maybe that, maybe that was a little bit of a, of a big blanket statement. I mean, because you are right. Yeah, people have been kind of hoarding and saving yeah. uh, to your point. Um, but at the same time, they're also spending. I mean, we're seeing uh, we're seeing homes, and as, as you said, flying yeah. off the shelf as fast as they possibly can, building materials, they can't get them fast enough, even used cars. So, uh, you know, fine art, I, I, fine art, and Rolexes. I'm told expensive wines are also going. You know, there's there's lots of uh, right. Lots of so stories I mean, I that. can't get a mountain bike. I can't get a dirt bike. I can't get a kayak. I can't get an RV. I can't yeah. get a boat. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, six, five year old, six year old boats are selling for more now than when they were new. I, I know mean, it's crazy. If if that's not inflation, I don't know what is. It's funny, you know. Uh, I live in uh, I live in the country. I'm on five acres, and uh, you know, I, I share this story because a buddy of mine was over. Uh, this was several months ago, and and we were on the deck having a beer and uh, we were socially distanced, by the way, so we were good. But the point is, is that, um, you know, he said to me, he goes, you know, he goes, Patrick, I, I, he says, let's, he says, I can do it. I've got the contacts. He says, you got lots of room out here. Let's buy a couple of trailer loads of plywood, you know? And uh, he said, you got lots of room to store it. And at the time, I want to say it was 42 bucks <laughs> a sheet, you know, Canadian. Yeah. Of course, now it's a hundred or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and I'm going, Damn it, missed that opportunity. I, nah, you're crazy. Yeah, I yeah. mean, <laughs> across the board. I mean, you know, in, 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 in the U.S., we have the Second Amendment. We have guns. And, uh, you know, I mean, ammo was like 25 cents around, and now it's a buck around. <laughs> it's like, crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's just, just insane. We, we could go on and on and on. But I we think, could. like I said, the shift is just that um, it's not that things are getting more expensive. It's that it's taking more dollars to buy those things. And so we always want to look at term, things in terms of purchasing power. I, mm. I made this other video um, the other day, and I was talking about um, you know gold and silver. And in nineteen uh, in nineteen sixty four and before in the United States, the dimes, quarters, and our, our coins were made of of silver, ninety percent silver. Mm -hmm. In nineteen sixty five, they got off of silver, and now they're made out of junk metal. Yeah. Um, in in nineteen sixty four, one gallon of gas was thirty cents, about a quarter. Mm -hmm. Today, a nineteen sixty four quarter is worth seven dollars. And gas is about three fifty or four bucks. So yeah. silver has gone up more than the rate of inflation on gas. Mm -hmm. Right today, one quarter will get me uh, a silver quarter will get me two gallons of gas. Well, you shared. I don't know if it was yours that you came up with the story or that you just shared the story. It may be common, but it was you that I heard it from, which was about you know the individual that grandfather or great grandfather you know took a, a, a silver coin, a one ounce silver coin, and put it in the safe and said, "I'm going to keep this you know as part of my legacy to give my family going forward." And at the last minute, I don't know the exact story, but he also threw a twenty dollar bill in there, which was huge money. It was like twenty bucks would feed you for a couple of months, and. Uh, 
that safe went on, you passed on to uh, his son and you know now your grandfather and father, and now yeah. they open up that safe and you've got that gold coin and it's, uh, you know, it's $18, $1,900. The value of that coin is $1,900 and uh, the value of the 20 bucks is what? You know, it's like, yeah. you know, go to buy a cheap cup of coffee at a, you know, a local store. So, you know, it's, 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 it was a really great uh, kind of uh, perspective that you shared in that story. And I often use it just with inflating assets all you know along. It's like buying a piece of real estate, to your point, in 1964, renting it out, having somebody, uh, you know, having a positive cash flow piece of real estate. And where would you be today? And don't we all yeah. wish, you know, that our fathers would have left us, you know, pieces of real estate and some Yeah, did, and when you course. look at it in terms of other things like that, right? So like, let's say in, you know, I don't know, 1950, the average home was $50,000. And that was, you know, whatever that was, you know, 60 ounces of gold and that sure. was a uh, hundred barrels of oil. Yeah. Uh, today the average home is $250,000, but it's still the same amount of ounces of gold, the same <laughs> amount of barrels of oil. Yeah. And so that's why that, that's kind of how that purchasing power works. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, listen, Mark, as we kind of wind things down, I appreciate uh, the time that you've, uh, you've given me today to have this conversation, really enjoyed it so much there. I'm like I say, I'm a big fan and then I'd encourage anybody to uh, get on. If there are YouTube uh, watchers to make sure that you look up Mark's stuff. He's, uh, he's excellent at what you do. Love your big board. And I'm a little bit envious of your electric giant whiteboard that you've got going on there. Uh, it's, it's, it's awesome. So, but uh, as we wind down, I want to come to a couple of uh, what we call rapid fire questions, have a little bit of fun and have a bit of a conversation, sure. Mark. What's your favorite book? You got a favorite book or a gift, a book that you gift a lot? Wow. Um, the favorite book. Well, <laughs> it depends on what genre you're talking about. Um, hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I think that Think and Grow Rich was probably the first one that really kind of shifted my whole focus. Yeah. So that and, and Rich Dad Poor Dad were probably kind I of- I knew it. I, yeah, it's, it's funny you say Rich Dad Poor Dad. I go on, okay, because on the real estate side, it, we're going to see- Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think those, I mean, those, I read those books 25, 30 years ago, yeah. and I think they were just uh, some of the most influential, and they were obviously early in my career. Yeah. Um, so I think those two really shifted the direction, Yeah. that and the Bible. Yeah. iPhone or Android? <laughs> so, um, I have been on, uh, Android since the iPhone four, yeah. um, my family is on the iPhone and they're always telling me, dad, you gotta get iPhone, iPhone, iPhone. And, uh, just two weeks ago, I switched from an Android back to an iPhone yeah. two weeks ago. So, yeah. uh, yeah, funny story there. I, I, I recently went from Android to, uh, within, uh, within the past few months, Android Big Android fan, still am. By the way, went to an iPhone. It's it's okay. I, I, like I don't know what all the excitement's about. I still have a what, PC. What, uh, what kicked me off the curb was just uh, you know um, I'm a privacy advocate, mm -hmm. and um, I just I'm not happy with what Google and Android are doing, just mm -hmm. stealing all the data. And, yeah. and Apple has put some new policies in place to really beef up and your privacy and security. Yeah. And so um, I opted for it for that for that reason. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Favorite inspirational quote. If your ship doesn't come in, swim out and get it. Ah, love that one. Love that one. Room desk or your car? What do you clean first? Well, my car gets cleaned every week by the detailer that comes by. <laughs> um, uh -huh. My wife cleans the room. And uh, so I guess I'm stuck cleaning the office. <laughs> okay. So you've got, okay. So here you are. It was funny when you were talking about what's more expensive, you named off all of the toys that, you know, you, you enjoy. I don't know if you were aware of that, but I picked up on that, uh, a boat, a bike, you know, you're talking about all the things that you enjoy yeah. and that's great. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so what kind of car do you drive? I, I just, given what you do, uh, have you got, have you got the proverbial sports car, you know, the 
Ferrari. When I was Porsche young, the- when I was younger, I had the proverbial sports car. I'm yeah. in Orange County, California. Yeah. I was living the dream. Of course, I had to have the expensive sports car yeah. in addition to a bunch of other cars. Cars are the worst thing in the world to put your money into. By the way, <laughs> uh, as an investor advisor, do not buy cars. Uh, that being said, I have a I have a 2020 Ford Raptor, which yep. is the apex predator of all trucks, in my opinion. Yeah. Um. So, uh, it is it is it is a lot of money. Uh, and uh, it goes against my advice, which is don't put your money into cars. Uh, but I, I believe that money is uh, about experiences and that truck enables me to go have the lifestyle that mm-hmm. I want. So it doesn't just take me to the grocery store, but rather it takes me uh, to very remote locations that I go to for surfing, dirt biking. Things yeah, I was like going to say it carries your dirt bike and your, and your surfboard. Yeah. So that's awesome. Do you have a favorite tune? A favorite tune? Um, yeah. You know, growing up in Southern California, it was like this, uh, this, this melting pot of music. And it was kind of between like, uh, rap rock and, and reggae. Um, so uh-huh. kind of like this, like new reggaeton uh-huh. is kind of like my favorite kind of music right now. Yeah. You know, something I haven't, uh, nobody's mentioned reggae for a long time, but I'm, I actually enjoy a little bit of Marley every so often and some reggae in general. So it's a good reminder. Yeah. How about a favorite movie? Oh boy. Um, you know, I used to love watching movies. I used to have hundreds, if, if not more, you know, $25 DVDs. I, I barely watch movies anymore. I feel like they're all propaganda these days. Um, favorite movie. I love, I, I get, it would have to be a comedy movie because those are the ones I can watch over and over and over. <laughs> and so uh, maybe in that genre of comedy movies, I mean, maybe it's uh, uh, maybe Zoolander or old school. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Hey, uh, okay. So a couple more favorite swear word. Uh, well, I've really worked, worked at tuning those out of my vocabulary over the last mm-hmm. dozen years or so after mm-hmm. running a couple of big businesses, I kind of had to get rid of that. So yeah, I don't, I don't really use those maybe under my breath once in a while if I yeah. hurt myself. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't really have well, one. Well, so, well, no, they're good for you. You know, it's interesting is that, uh, we, I talk about this often is that, you know, F-bomb seems to be a really common one recently, you know, shit, you know, it's, it's, and, and I'm always drawn back because because I can get a little bit fired up. But, you know, uh, somebody once said to me is that, you know, you just don't have a great command of the English language. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to swear. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think it definitely adds a little spice, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, I think I think it can definitely be overused. And I definitely yeah. can think of a few people that definitely overuse it. Uh, but I can think of some people, I mean, you throw it in here or there, it definitely can add some spice. But yeah, it's just something I've just, just opted to kind of tune out. Beautiful. And finally, what are you grateful for, Mark? Oh, shoot, man. You know, gratitude is, is the most important thing. I've actually been reading this uh, series on, on gratitude this week. Um, it, it's the most important thing. Um, boy, I have so much to be thankful for. You know, I guess the thing I'm the most thankful for, gra- grateful for, I mean, uh, my family, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, my health. Mm-hmm. Those are probably two big things. Yeah. You know, I find in the world of the pandemic, uh, it sometimes is uh, what grounds me is stopping. When I look around the world, it seems to at times be imploding. And uh, I find that sometimes the only thing that grounds me is getting back to what am I grateful for, you know. And uh, certainly health is one of those things. Uh, Family is another. And uh, I want to say, Mark, I'm extremely grateful that you joined me on the show today and uh, sincerely appreciate the journey that you shared and the insights that uh, you brought to the show. So thank you very much and uh, look forward to another day of catching up and hearing more and uh, I'll be following along for sure. Hey, Patrick, thanks so much. It was a great conversation. Happy you had me on. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. 
If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.